Uh, well, I'm super excited to have uh, JC on to, uh, for an interview. Uh, so JC is an attorney and real estate investor, and he also makes a lot of uh, entertaining videos on YouTube. So it was a natural to, to connect with him and uh, get his insight into the real estate market, into investing, and maybe we'll even talk a little bit of YouTube uh, later on in this as well. So thanks so much for joining me on the call, JC. Thanks for having me. It's nice that we're finally talking after watching each other's videos for so long. Yeah, I'm a big fan of your videos. Uh, I always enjoy them. So I, again, it was very easy for me to, to reach out and, and finally put an actual uh, face to the to the YouTube videos. Yeah, same, same. Uh, so uh, maybe we'll start just a little bit of background on you, on on how how you got into real estate investing. I, I, in one of your videos, you mentioned you've been an attorney for over 10 years, uh, and then you got into real estate investing shortly thereafter. So I'd love to hear more about your journey. Sure. Uh, I grew up in New York City. Um, New York City is ever-changing. Uh, it's rare to meet someone in New York who's actually from New York City, born and raised. And I watched neighborhoods change and gentrification um, from, from the grassroots level. Uh, so I, I would see people who had been immigrants who would come into certain neighborhoods and then a booming neighborhood next door would overflow into that neighborhood, push the immigrant community out. People would move to Long Island, New Jersey, Westchester, or the outer boroughs like Brooklyn, Queens, Bronx. And suddenly skyscrapers would be built. And over my childhood and lifetime in New York City, it was something that you can't not notice. And I was intrigued by who's, who's the person that pulls the strings to make a building go from a four-story rundown walk-up to a 25-story luxury condominium that's got an all-glass exterior overlooking the Hudson River. I wanted to know how that happened, and it always fascinated me. And um, as, as life would have it, I was working in a totally different field, and I had a, a production company. I was shooting and directing and producing music videos and uh, documentary and reality TV footage for other companies. And we sold our company and uh, I decided I was going to go to law school and pursue real estate because I got, had gotten some great advice. I'd met some people who were real estate investors while I was working in the entertainment industry. And they really had made their money in real estate. And they said to me, unless you have a top MBA and are working at a major uh, institution, getting a law degree is probably your best bet. And I thought about that. And I'd always been intrigued about the idea of being a lawyer as well. That was something as a kid I thought was fascinating. So I, I went to law school solely with a focus on real estate law. Um, and here I am over 10 years later, still doing it. And so, and then you got into real estate investing as well. I know that that's pretty much the, the cornerstone of the videos that you're making, that your channel's confident real estate. Uh, so what, what was the first real estate investment that you made then? So for me, it was even going into law school, I was pretty focused on the fact that I was going to invest in real estate. Uh, I wanted multiple avenues of income. So I had started investing. Part of my practice is commercial real estate, buying and selling, structuring, financing and corporate structures for office buildings, hotels, and apartment complexes. And the other half of it is I do new condominium development. So if you ever see 
the show Million Dollar Listing on Bravo and all those brokers. I represent a lot of those developers um, in different aspects of their condominium formation. So I have invested initially with smaller developers I knew who were doing condos in New Jersey and other areas outside of Manhattan. And that's where I started doing my real estate investing in new construction condominiums, which was great and had good returns. Uh, I had a couple of colleagues who were construction managers. They would buy very old apartments in neighborhoods that were starting to transition and combine them into a mega apartment. So an apartment that you pay a million and a half for uptown that would be $6 million if it was in Midtown. You know, we could buy those apartments for a few hundred grand each and he would do the work and I would invest in those deals. Now I'm starting to shift my focus into actually owning a portfolio, not just investing in new construction deals, selling it off, getting my money out and going on to the next new construction. It's, I guess, the New York City version of house flipping. Um, so now I'm, I'm more focused on actually building a, a portfolio and building something I think that really came about because I have kids now, small kids, and I want something that I could leave to them and transition them into. Yeah, that, that reminds me of a comment that you said before, the single greatest way to generational wealth is through investing in real estate. So when you start thinking of not just the, the empire that we're trying to build, but for the future generations as well, I, I agree with you completely. I started investing in real estate uh, when I was quite young as well, uh, started with houses, uh, but flipping. I, I didn't hold any of those houses for a long time, I was going to buy a house fix it up and sell it. And then when I got into commercial real estate in 2005, I immediately saw the opportunity that commercial real estate would be far more lucrative as an investment. So it, it took a while. It took me probably 10 years before I had the capital and the knowledge to comfortably put my own money at risk. Uh, but I started investing in commercial real estate in 2015. Uh, and I've, I've built up my portfolio over the last six years now as well. And it's exciting to see what happens when you can actually build a build a portfolio that is giving you that cash flow every single month, not taking into account the a capital pay down uh, and then just a asset value appreciation as well. So there's some real awesome opportunities long term when you start building a, a good portfolio. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you touched on what the biggest issue there is, is a lot of people are looking at it as cash flow only. And it, really, from my perspective, being in a very expensive market, capital appreciation far outweighs the benefits of the cash flow, um, because that's where the real wealth is. I mean, I, I see it in people, clients that I represent, who will buy you know large apartment complexes, they're on another level. But they'll buy a large apartment complex for 10, 15 million and do some cosmetic renovations, some mechanical upgrades, nothing crazy, and just manage the building better and you know raise the rents that have never been raised and get better quality tenants in. And five years later, they'll go to do a refinance and the building is worth several million more than they paid for it. And they're pulling most of the equity that they put in out. And, you know, every five years, they're pulling equity out. And now they're getting cash flow. Um, it, it's the equity appreciation factor of it that just blows my mind. Because if you could go refinance a property and pull out seven figures in a cash out, that's a 
that's debt. That's not income. You're not taxed on that. That's just money in your pocket to go do a new deal with or do whatever you want with. Yeah, a fascinating story. So I, one of the properties, first properties I ever bought was a warehouse condo. Uh, and it was it was essentially just a raw condo, but the tenant put in a $250,000 cooler in there. They were a seafood distributor. So I thought I had a pretty good insulation on the fact that they had invested so heavily in this property. I only paid $450 uh, for the condo and they put a $250,000 cooler in there. Uh, yeah. I just ended up selling it. it. Just it just closed about a month ago, uh, and I took a loss on it. I actually had to take a paper loss on it because the company was uh, considering moving, and I didn't want to get stuck with a raw condo that didn't even have a washroom in there, uh, and then potentially have to spend all the money to fix it up. And we're our, our market's pretty depressed right now as well. So I was, I was worried. So I ended up having to sell it at a loss. Uh, but because I had cash flowed on it for five years and also paid down a good chunk of the mortgage, I still actually ended up making money. Uh, my IRR was pretty weak uh, over that five-year holding period, but I actually still made money even selling at a loss. And the one powerful thing I think of real estate is if I were to imagine if that actually appreciated in value instead of having to sell it at a $40,000 loss or whatever the end number was, if I would have made $40,000 in appreciation, that would have been an $80,000 swing just on one small property. So to your point, absolutely. Like that, that appreciation is how people actually make a ton of money. And I think if I could have stuck in the pocket longer and stayed there for, stayed with that property for another 10, 15 years, paid it off. I'm sure there would have been some appreciation you can make some real wealth just by holding on to it as opposed to panicking like I did and selling early. No, but I, I think you also hit on a great point that, you know, is part of what I try to get across is that you have to, you have to have confidence. I mean, I, I named my YouTube channel confident real estate because you have to have confidence and be able to separate your emotions from the business that this actually is. And to know what you're capable of doing, do you have the capacity, the, finances or the willingness to build out a space for a new tenant who's going to want, you know, huge upgrades, or is that just not worth your time and the time value of, you know, the, the money you're going to get and the time you're going to spend, you got to make good decisions, which obviously it sounds like you did because you still came away with profit. But I think that's where a lot of new investors get stuck. Um, it becomes emotional. I, I know that uh, my, my wife personally hates when I say it, but you know, we have a beautiful home, but I, she says, Oh, you know, I love this. And our children took our, their first steps here. I said, yeah, but it's still just an asset. Like it's, it's our home. But, uh, I mean, we bought this house. I knew this market was going to boom and I bought before it boomed. And now we have a ton of equity in this house. And I keep saying like, it's, it's not an emotional thing. It's, this is, there are emotions to it. It is where our family lives, but it's just an asset. And it's the same with any other piece of real estate. You got to separate the emotions and do like you did with m what makes sense. The numbers don't lie. One of my favorite quotes, if you know how to put the numbers together and read the numbers and look at the market and as you who work in real estate, you know how to read the market, see where the cycle's going you just got to be honest with yourself and say, time to get out and still walk away with the profit. You know, there's a, I, I'm big on sayings. Another one of my big favorites is Warren Buffett says, just don't lose money. You know, you, you don't have to hit a home run every time. Just don't lose money. 
Yeah. And even with that one in particular being a bit of a, a call it a single using the baseball analogy, uh, that would yeah. have been a single, uh, we didn't strike out because we still made a little bit of money on it. Uh, but I was able to actually take the proceeds on that and, and buy something else. So I, I like that point is it's, you got to take the emotion out of it and just look at it objectively on where is the best place to put your money. And in that particular case, I just wasn't willing to spend the money, uh, on, on a small industrial condo and ended up putting that into a a freestanding industrial building, which, which is actually a much bigger property. So it, it actually worked out in the end, but I, I think, and this is one point I really want to explore with you because I, I think you and I share the same thought is having a really good understanding of, of what commercial or industrial real estate is and how an investor can, can parlay from investing in residential to investing in commercial or industrial because i hear this a lot and i'm sure you do too uh any real estate investor almost certainly got their start in residential unless they're like an institutional guy and they worked as an analyst and had some direct experience most real estate investors in the entrepreneurial spirit anyways get their start in residential but there's always that temptation that that appeal that commercial offers but a lot of people just don't understand it and rightfully so you don't they don't teach commercial real estate in school so what are you saying to people uh that want to get into into commercial that have a residential background right now you know it's interesting um because when i started the, the confident real estate youtube channel i really wanted to focus on commercial but i realized pretty quickly that it just wasn't getting the views because most new investors are really interested in what's obtainable which is in their mindset, residential. That's not necessarily the case. And I've actually been toying with the idea of starting to get back into commercial real estate videos, because quite honestly, you know, as you said, residential real estate is really the entry point into real estate investing, but there are other aspects of commercial real estate, other asset classes that I, I think often get overlooked, like self-storage, which is, you know, in the industrial asset class, or um, even small strip malls and retail centers where, yeah, maybe retail, you hear constantly retail is dead, maybe for places that are selling goods, but services are still going to be there. Hair salons and, you know, pet grooming places, pet stores, unless people are buying dogs offline, maybe they are, I don't know. Um, Hey, maybe Amazon's got that on, on lockdown too. Amazon um, pets. Yeah, exactly. That'll be next. <laughs> um, but mixed use properties. I mean, I, it, it's interesting because I'm looking in an area that is booming residentially. Um, it's here in New Jersey and it's just the city got expensive. Then people wanted to get out of the city during COVID, but they couldn't afford to go too far because they still have to go into the office a few days a week now. Uh, as, as things start to get better. And, you know, so there's a residential focus, but there's a lot of mixed use properties as well, which is just one retail store with four apartments above it. And you can buy those properties in some cases cheaper than buying a three family home, hmm. which is interesting to me. And the benefit of, as you know, of commercial real estate, especially if you're a new investor, you're trying to get your money together. Because what's the biggest hurdle for a new real estate investor is the the cash to put down to buy a property. And you buying a residential property, you're getting a residential mortgage, and everybody who's 
going to own the property or invest in the property has to be on the deed in their individual name. They can't enter into it under an LLC and get a residential mortgage. And then they have to guarantee the loan like a residential mortgage requires. Maybe your friends and family, your grandmother is going to invest with you. She believes in you, but she doesn't want to guarantee a mortgage on a property she's never going to see. The benefit, obviously, in commercial real estate is you could set up a corporate entity like an LLC that ends up owning the property and only the primary investors and the actual managing people managing day-to-day operations and the financials of the property are going to be the guarantors, the limited partners like someone's grandmother. They're not going to have to guarantee anything on the mortgage and they're not going to have to be on the deed in their individual name. And again, commercial real estate, commercial loans, there's a lot more flexibility for negotiation on the terms. I mean, that's for lawyers, that's the beauty of it. In commercial real estate, it's the wild, wild west. Residential real estate here in the States is heavily regulated. There's especially after the subprime mortgage crisis. But commercial is you're deemed to be a professional who should have some knowledge of how real estate works. It's pretty open. So that's why it's a little dangerous and scares people, but also why it has a lot of opportunities. Yeah, and I echo those comments. And I usually say to people as well is that commercial real estate should scare you. Like, I think it it should scare you. I think a healthy amount of fear is a good thing when you're potentially investing millions of dollars. And uh, in Canada, where I'm I'm out of, uh, a lot of the times you still have to personally guarantee even a commercial loan, uh, depending on on what the terms of it are. I, I think that like healthy amount of fear though is, is good. Uh, and, and I think what it does is it prompts people to realize that it, it, it's, it's an grown-ups game. Like you can't just take yeah. 20 grand that you had set aside and go buy a residential condo. It takes a significant amount of capital to start getting into these projects. So the, the most responsible thing you can do when you're putting that much money out there is to ensure that you know everything you possibly can about it. Uh, whereas residential is pretty common. Like you can, you can learn the basics of residential, not become an expert by any means, but at least learn the basics relatively quickly. Whereas uh, commercial and used self-storage is a great example. That's a very specialized industry of, of commercial real estate investing with all its own language and nuances and different players in there and how they analyze sites and, and what works for that. If someone wants to invest in self-storage, they almost have to spend uh, uh, a considerable amount of time just learning all the stuff just for that one individual thing. So I think commercial real estate has tremendous opportunity, but it also comes with tremendous risk if people aren't prepared. And I think you hit on a great point there because I think a lot of people are scared of commercial real estate because they know how to live in an apartment or a house because they do it themselves. They don't know how to operate a hotel or a self-storage facility, um, how to read a commercial lease. But if you're going to do anything worthwhile, you got to be all in. You can't, you know, do it halfway. You know, what, what, what's that saying? Uh, you can't be half pregnant. You got to be all the way. You got to get in there and really spend the time to know what you're doing, learn about it, absorb it, go work for somebody, even part-time, just be around it, get some experience in whatever area of commercial real estate interests you. Um, you know, and if, if you're the person who's pursuing it and putting the deal together, you should absolutely be personally guaranteeing it. But if you have family and friends who want to give you money, 
who don't want to be on a guarantee with you, then you may be able to work that out on a commercial loan. And of course, again, going back to the beauty of a commercial loan, if you're a real estate investor with a vast portfolio and extreme amounts of knowledge and experience, and you go buy a residential property with a residential mortgage, it doesn't matter who you are. You're going to get the same residential mortgage as the guy who's getting into a deal that has every red flag waving in his face and he's ignoring them. You're both getting the same terms. Where in the commercial side, if you know what you're doing and your experience is a value asset in itself that lenders will take a look at, and you could go and get a property and maybe get a non-recourse guarantee with bad boy carve-outs where you're not personally guaranteeing you know, the, the loan, but you're guaranteeing that you won't commit any malicious acts and there are certain events of default that will trigger you to be on the guarantee, but otherwise the entity that bought the property is really guaranteeing it, not you personally. There are options there that come with experience and building relationships with lenders and different people within the commercial real estate space that residential real estate just doesn't seem to offer generally. And that, that brings up a really good point because that's one of the main things that I recommend to people if they're considering uh, getting into commercial real estate is to have a, a team around you. Where I think in residential, you can buy, like a, if you wanted to buy a small condo or buy a single family house, you could use any real estate agent or any any real estate lawyer. You could probably just go to your bank. You don't necessarily need a team that that knows you, but in commercial real estate, it's imperative to have a lawyer that you really trust that's with you that whole whole time, a, a broker, a, a, a lender, whether it's either someone direct or a mortgage broker, uh, but it even goes beyond that. You probably want to have an engineer on your, on your team. Uh, you probably want to have some specialists like a contractor. You want to actually build a team out early for that exact reason that you mentioned is it's a, it's a complex world. And that's, that's what professionals are, are, designed to do. They're, they're here to actually help you get from point A to point B with as less stress as possible. Uh, and, and that point you made about uh, even how you structure a loan, you're not going to know that unless you actually have professionals giving good guidance on how you actually get there. And you've probably heard me say on my videos that I, I hammer it home constantly. You need an attorney to represent you whenever you do any kind of deal. But it really, when you're doing a real estate deal, a especially a commercial real estate deal. It has to be a real estate attorney. I mean, I've, I've had friends who live in other parts of the country who say, oh my, I got an attorney and we prepared this contract. Could you take a quick look at it for me? Uh, you know, cause I'm the real estate attorney that they know. I said, sure, I'll take a look at it. And it horrifies me. And I say to them, this is not a real estate attorney. Where'd you find your attorney? Oh no, they came through a friend. They represented my friend in a will signing or something, you know, family law related. I'm like, no, buddy, you got to go find a real estate attorney, especially when it's a commercial real estate investment. It's just, it's, if you don't know what you're doing, if you don't have the right team, as you said, you could find yourself in trouble. And so one quick story on that. And, and I, couldn't agree with you more. Uh, having a, a good lawyer is something that I recommend to people before they're even starting the process of, of buying, selling, or leasing commercial real estate, because those contracts can be quite daunting. And there's a lot of stuff in there that if you're not paying attention up front can really hurt you. So I'm a big advocate of having a lawyer uh, right up front. One funny story on not using a real estate lawyer. So I represent a big institutional uh, property owner here and they 
they use the same lease across all of Canada. So several hundred tenants that they use the same lease with. And we had a, uh, a tenant interest in leasing one of the spaces and they used a lawyer from a small town that was somewhat of a generalist, but I think that their main focus was like wills and estates. And the lawyer went through the the standard lease that we provided to the to the tenant. And again, this <laughs> no, going. <laughs> you, you know where this is going. So again, same lease that they use with like Fortune 500 companies all across yeah. Canada, the exact same lease. And this lawyer came back and had uh, six pages of changes, sorry, 12 pages of changes. And it was over 600 changes uh, that they recommended on this lease, 600 changes. And the landlord's like, I don't even know where to start start on this. Like, (laughs) how how do I go through 600 changes on a standard lease? Yeah, I I mean, and that's exactly the perfect example of it. Because then you get yourself in a situation where you have an attorney who doesn't understand, you know, you read something in a contract and if you're not familiar with how it works, you interpret it a certain way where you have to understand how the courts really interpret certain provisions and what what is your real concern? What are you trying to avoid? Because it's not just the language you see in front of you without getting into sounding like a total legal nerd here, but it's not just the language you see in front of you, it's the impact and intentions of what that language really represents and how it could possibly play out for you. Um, you know, I just did a video on protecting your deal because people just assume you're in a contract, you're in a contract, but what do you do if your seller in a hot market in a, a rural or suburban area gets a much higher offer and just says, I'm not gonna sell to you? Do you have default and damage provisions in there? Because uh, I've seen deals where someone's getting a good deal and they want to jump on it. And we put in those default provisions and suddenly the attorney on the other side takes them out and we realize they're still shopping the deal. They're not a hundred percent yet. They're looking for an opportunity to back out if better money comes along. So yeah. And, and the other side of it is when you have a brand new attorney right out of law school, who's reading their first contract and they come back with, you know, 600 changes. And you say to them, that's boilerplate on the state bar form. You can't change that. You're clearly missing the point here. You're worried about things that are so immaterial to the deal that you're just running up a bill on your client for no apparent reason. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I, the last thing I want to do is denigrate young lawyers or lawyers that uh, that work outside of real estate, because I, I'm sure that they're really good at what they're doing and their heart's in the right place. I'm sure they're doing the best job, but I, I do default back to that uh, first comment that having a, a good, competent real estate lawyer is imperative uh, in the process. So uh, I, I think that'd be like the one thing that that I'd suggest. And, and that's why I really appreciate uh, the, the videos that you're putting out there is you're coming in from a perspective of both. You're coming from, from as a an attorney yourself, but also as a real estate investor. So I, I think you had a long runway. I think, I think what you're doing on, on YouTube is, is going to be really beneficial. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, and yeah, to your point, you know, again, I don't want to denigrate anyone either, but there's a reason that a lawyer with 30 years experience costs considerably more per hour than the guy who just graduated law school. Experience is a huge factor in any business that you get into. Um, and real estate is no different. And, you know, you got to have that team around you. And, and one other expert I would add to your team is your title insurance company. Um, that's something that scares me is how often new investors overlook the importance of title insurance and 
properly clearing title matters. Uh, I've, I've seen too many times where someone buys a property, the mortgage from the person selling it to them gets paid off, but they never collect the satisfaction of mortgage. And then five, 10 years later, they go to sell their property and it still shows an open mortgage on the property from the prior seller. And it's something you can clean up, but it's just an extra headache you don't need. And that's one of those things where having the right title insurance company, the right real estate attorney, the right professionals around you can say, hey, where's your satisfaction of mortgage at the closing table when you buy to avoid that headache 10 years down the line? You know, people um, amongst lawyers, there's a, a phrase where you say people don't want to pay you when everything's going well, but you have to remind them that they're going to pay pay you 10 times more when things go badly if they didn't pay you at the start of the deal. Uh, that's a great point. I like that. So what would you recommend to people that, uh, that any call it anywhere in North America, that's someone looking to get into real estate investing and they're looking for an attorney, what would you recommend that they, they look for? How do you find a good real estate attorney that's competent? Like we were talking about. I would say the first thing that you have to do is whoever your broker tells you, and uh, no offense to any brokers, but whoever your broker tells you to use as an attorney or to do your inspections, especially when it's in a small residential market and it's a residential broker, you know, again, not to disparage anybody or, uh, you know, but take that with a grain of salt. They get commission when they close the deal. Go out there and amazingly, it's like you could do Yelp reviews for attorneys. You can just look at properties that have closed and look at the deeds and see who's on the deeds. Um, but quite honestly, in, you know, and I want to say look at the deeds because when you record a deed, it gets returned most likely to the attorney. So you see who the attorneys are on those deals. But honestly, it's word of mouth, um, especially in local markets and smaller markets. You're going to know who's out there, who's doing deals. You can talk to an attorney and get a sense of their understanding of it let them ask you questions. If your attorney just says, yeah, I could represent you and has no questions to ask about the property you're buying, how you're paying for it, how much you're putting down, whether you've got financing lined up, whether you've already acquired title insurance, what your intentions are for the property. If they have no questions for you, to me, that's a red flag. Um, because as an attorney myself, if somebody comes to me with a deal, I need to know the particulars to know if I'm the best person to represent them. Because thankfully, I, I've got a lot on my plate and I don't want to waste my time or theirs. Um, so I find that if you run into an attorney who has no questions for you and nobody's recommending them, you don't hear about them. Uh, I mean, it, it, you just got to really use common sense. Honestly, it's what it comes down to. But just don't go into it blindly. Expect from your attorney what you would expect from anyone else. And I, And I say that because for some reason, there's this perception that Attorneys are brilliant, intelligent people, and a lot of them are, but not all of them. And there's like an intimidation factor. And I've, I've talked to a lot of new investors who kind of relayed this to me as well. There's an intimidation factor where they go in and they just assume they're a licensed attorney. They must know more than I do. And they kind of let the attorney run their deal for them without questioning things that they would question of anybody else who wasn't an attorney. Ask the questions. You're paying them. They're your professional that you're paying. Have those conversations. Uh, you know, don't let them run with your deal without you really being the one who's running it and involved. 
Uh, that's, that's a really great tip. And, and, and I think people would be wise to, to listen to that very carefully because it, it is important that you have somebody on your team that is equally engaged with your long-term success as you are. And, and, and I, I do agree. I think people are too quick to just take the first name that's given to them, uh, whether it's a lawyer or broker or bank or whatever, they just take that first name and they just assume that that person's going to do it. I, I think interviewing or at least talking to a few different people uh, will help you get a much better sense of who's actually committed to your long-term success, as opposed to just trying to push the paper through and get that file off their desk as quickly as possible. So I, I, think, that, I think that's a really good point on that. I will say, and, and the other the other thing I will add is um, when it comes to an attorney or and a lot of professionals, but especially when it comes to somebody like an attorney who's supposed to be protecting you, don't cheap out. There are things you can cheap out on. You can negotiate with your contractor. You can negotiate with other people. You can negotiate with your attorney, but don't cheap out. Uh, I will tell a quick story. I did a deal on a new condominium development. And there was this guy who we used to see quite often. He was very cheap and he would get a lot of deals. Brokers would refer their clients to him because they knew he wasn't really going to do much work. He wouldn't bring up pertinent issues. He would just get the contract signed up and get it to closing. And he comes to the closing table. I was a new attorney, so I was uh, still doing some residential deals at the time. And the questions he asked me about the condominium and he, there was a particular structure to the condominium with a person signing on behalf of the sponsor entity that built this new construction was different than the person named in the offering plan. And there was a reason for it. And it was explained on page one of the offering plan. And an offering plan is basically a prospectus for a new construction condominium that has to be filed with the state, with the attorney general's office. And... And discloses everything about this new construction, who's responsible, who's behind it, what the warranties are, et cetera. And this unique ownership structure situation was explained, no joke, on page one, first paragraph. And he turns around to me and says, your, your documents are all wrong. You have the wrong signatory on there. I don't know who this person is, but they're not the person who runs it. I said, yeah, they're, they're the authorized signatory. He goes, no, they're not. Show me where that is in the offering plan. I said, I don't even have to look at it. He shoved the book across the table. I said, I don't even need to look. It's page one, literally the first paragraph. And he's saying this with his client sitting next to him. And I looked at her and I thought, you paid for it. <laughs> it shouldn't have cheaped out. Clearly, this guy had never opened the book. So how is he doing the due diligence to represent you and make sure you're getting a good deal and that you're protected if he never opened the book to even look at what you were buying? Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I'll say this kind of tongue in cheek. I, the last thing I want to do is make a lawyer joke. But uh, the, uh, <laughs> the, the, there's the thing that uh, everybody hates lawyers, but they always love their lawyer. Uh, and and I, th I think if you've got the right lawyer, I, I know my lawyer, uh, I, I, I think he's a fantastic guy. I can reach him anytime that I need to. Uh, I, I feel that he's got my interests at heart. I think he's a fantastic lawyer and a human being. So I, I just, I really like that guy. Uh, and I, I think that that's what you want to do is you want to have a lawyer that has your best interests at heart, uh, that, that is committed to helping you get through a deal beyond just pushing paper. Because we see that on the real estate side as well. There's there's brokers that just push files 
just to get it off yeah. their, off their t- desk. And there's really no value add there. So I, I think that it, you need to have that team. It, equally as important as having a team, it's having the right team. Uh, and that that is having people that are committed to your long-term success. Uh, and not to beat a dead horse, but having a good quality lawyer is high on that list. And, and you know, brokers, lawyers, title insurance, um, you know, companies that do inspections, environmental companies, we're all service industries. We're not selling a product. We are all providing a service to the real estate industry and the people who are buying and selling properties. It, it's just common business sense that we should be invested in our clients' long-term success. We want them to continue to grow and be profitable so they continue to come back to us and hire us again for more deals because as they grow, we grow. I mean, it's just the basic economics of any service industry. And unfortunately, it's lost on a lot of people. Um, so yeah, if you're on the other side of it, hiring the service professional demands that they be the professional you expected them to be. And I think that kind of speaks to like the whole topic that we're going around on this is when you're invested in real estate, whether it's the first property you make in residential or whether you're making a larger commercial property, it's to be prepared. Be, be prepared, make sure that you know everything you can about that industry and make sure you have the the right team on there. So I, I appreciate you labbing on that. I, th- I think that filled in a, a lot of info on that. Uh, I want to switch gears a little bit and, uh, and talk about a few, uh, let's call it interesting topics. So first I want to get your thoughts on just what New York is like right now. Uh, and then I want to go into uh, 1031s uh, and we'll, we'll probably finish on, on that because of, of the, I, I think New York is a fascinating topic for people not in New York. Uh, just to hear what's going on there. And then 1031s, I don't know if everybody fully understands that. So I want to get your thoughts on that. And I also want to get your thoughts on what would happen if uh, the Biden administration were to roll that back. So uh, I, I, know a, I know that's a loaded question, but uh, we'll, we'll we'll dip our toes in there and see where we get. So if, I guess first part on that is New York. What's, what's New York like right now? Um, you know, New York is New York. If you've never been here, uh, I know you have, um, but if, if for people who've never been here, you just don't understand what New York is. It's a city, but it's a living being unto itself. It is 24 hours a day. Um, you know, COVID locked everything down and shut the restaurants and indoor, indoor dining, at least, and things like that. But it's New York City. People are moving, were moving out of the city during 2020, looking for suburban spaces because a lot of offices started to work remotely. I've been working remotely um, because, you know, as a lawyer, I just need a computer, really. Um, and commercial closings are usually done in escrow. So there was sit down closings haven't been done in a long, long time around here. Um, so for me, it works. But New York, after everybody ran to get out of it during 2020. Now, 2021, there are deals to be had. And we see a lot of people who were always outside because they couldn't afford it running in and now buying up great deals in the city. Uh, it's The market's definitely starting to stabilize a little bit. Um, more people are, are buying, I think, than selling. It's not the it, before it was a buyer's market because sellers were just everywhere. People just wanted to get out. And now I think um, we're starting to see new construction condominium projects are starting to get more deals in contract. 
um, people who had already started developing, you know, new buildings for whether for rental or for uh, condominium, they're still going forward with those plans. Nothing's really changed. I mean, it's hard to uh, stop an, as I say, it's hard to stop an aircraft carrier on a dime. It takes a while to turn that around. Um, but nobody seems to be turning around. Everybody's still going forward with the plans they had, because at the end of the day, even though a lot of companies and people are going to be working remotely, if you're just out of college and you don't have a family, I mean, that's most of what New York City is, in, in, especially in Manhattan. Um, I said at the beginning of this, I'm the rare actual native New Yorker who was born and raised in the city. You could go to a bar or restaurant in Manhattan and not find one single person who lives there who was born there. It's just the nature of New York City. So everybody who's graduating, who doesn't have families yet, who wants to experience life and go meet their significant other and have some adventures, they're not going to work remotely living in their parents' basement or in some suburb. They're still going to flock back to the city. And, you know, a large portion of New York City real estate is foreigners who come into New York for business, for shopping, for theater, for the culture and the living beast that is New York City. Um, I, I know we've sold luxury condominiums to people who show up for two weeks a year, but they want a place to park their money that they know it's going to appreciate in value and also have an apartment to come to when they come to the city for business and shopping and theater. Um, I don't think that's going to change. I really strongly believe that it will take a little while, but it will rebound and be what New York City has always been because there's nothing like it. And it's not going to go away. It's not going to be replaced. It's been through disasters before I was there. I lived through 9-11. I mean, it's just, it's going to rebound and it will be just fine. But right now, public transportation, you know, everybody's uh, keeping each other, supposed to keep each other at least at arm's length. Um, It's a little bit of a crazy situation, uh, you know, and, you see in a lot of suburban areas where the impact of people not being out and about, animals have come out of the woods and started to roam the streets. And you see news stories about things like that. In New York City, people not being in major midtown business areas where their offices are, you've seen uh, you know, more of a decline in, unfortunately, homelessness, um, graffiti, there was the riots and the looting. A lot of that took place because there was just there's those neighborhoods were just not occupied and you know, um, but it it's starting to turn around and uh it's New York City. I think it'll be just fine. And hopefully hospitality sector, which is a big portion of New York's income, the tourism, uh rebounds as well. I will say New York State and New York City, they face a big tax deficit issue. Because so many people with high incomes have left the state and the city. And, uh, you know, I think it was something like 46% of the city's budget was paid for by the top 1% of earners that lived in the city. And a significant portion of those top 1% have left. They're not coming back. So we'll see how that plays out. Well, I've I've traveled a lot and New York City is probably the top city that I've ever been to. Uh not just for the infrastructure and the and the buildings and all the things to do, but just the energy that was there of just people all the time, 24-7, just everywhere you went, there's people walking. There's an energy I 
can't even describe. So I, I can't wait to go back to New York. That That's probably the next place I'm going to want to, to take our family to again. Uh, so I, I, I hope that that does rebound and I'm sure that it will, that, that, that allure of being in such an energetic place with so much going on and everything that they're to do and to see and to experience, I, I have no doubt that it will come back in, in all of its glory. It's, it's an awesome city. I'm jealous it's of you being here all the time. Yes. Uh, so I guess uh, just as we wrap up, because I don't want to take uh, too much more of your time, uh, I just want to talk about 1031s, because I think this this is an interesting area. We don't have 1031s in Canada, uh, but I, I've followed it pretty closely in the U.S., and I've got a pretty good understanding of it. But from your perspective, how would you describe the 1031 tax exchange? Uh, crucial to commercial real estate industry in the United States. Uh, I mean, it's a critical component. Um you know, I, I, I'll say you probably don't have the turnover in properties in Canada that we do here for the sole factor of 1031. Um, you know, I don't know that, but I, I would assume because oh, it, it's, it's true. just, yeah, it, it's such a critical factor. It's an ability to build capital appreciation. You can go buy property A, build it up, you know, do some cosmetic changes, own it for a while, manage it well build up capital equity appreciation in the property, and then go buy a bigger property using the profits that you made on the sale of your first property without having to pay capital gains taxes, which is usually around 20% of your profits. Um, I mean, that is huge. And as you grow deal after deal, uh, I mean, it, it just, it, it's like a domino effect. It's compounding interest. You end up with, you know, $20,000 profit that you put into another deal that you didn't have to pay taxes on. And then the next time you cash out is $100,000 extra that you're not t- paying taxes on. It's not that you're forgiven on the taxes. It's just deferred. If you ever sell a property and don't go and replace it with a new property, you're going to owe the taxes all the way back to that initial property that you sold. But if you keep buying property after property and just reinvesting that money, I mean, it's, it's a boom for the economy, um, for the real estate industry, it creates jobs. It, it's just such a driving factor and it builds wealth so much more substantially than you could in real estate without it. Um, you know, I'm sure you see people who just would love to sell a property and take that money and and go invest in another property, but they don't want to pay that large tax bill that they're going to be faced with because they've owned the property for so long and it's built up so much equity. You know, it's, it's a hard pill to swallow. It's very common in Canada. Like that is a very common statement that gets made is that people don't want to sell just because of that capital gain. Yeah, it's huge. Um, and it, it really, you know, I've seen it. I have a client who has been doing this for 30 something years and they are using entities to buy properties today that they started in the early nineties, late eighties, um, that they've just been doing 1031 after 1031 from deal to deal to deal. I mean, and now they're going to leave these properties to their children. And when they die, it clears the tax basis. So, if their children then go sell a property, they don't have to pay capital gains on that last property that was bought. 
They don't have to pay capital gains going all the way back. Um, it's such an unbelievable tool. I don't think it will ever go away. Uh, I know a lot of people jumped on this bandwagon of it helps the rich get richer. And I've heard all kinds of crazy things about it, which just goes to show you how much people don't really understand the intricacies of it. Um, it really creates a tremendous amount of jobs and income for the economy all over the United States. Yeah. So I guess needless to say, without even uh, getting into politics at all, needless to say, you just want the 1031 to stay intact. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And quite honestly, even the people who are against it vocally, who clearly don't fully understand it, they want it to stay intact too, because it would be such a, a bad thing for the economy at large. It would just, a lot of jobs would be lost if you got rid of 1031. Well, hopefully for your guys' sake, it stays. And uh, hopefully for Canada's sake, something like that could get adopted at some point in the future. Because I, I agree, I'm sure that the, uh, the the amount of jobs that spin off and economic uh, development and opportunities, it's, it's crazy. So hopefully you guys uh, keep it and hopefully we get it. Yeah, yeah and uh, you know, especially for brokers. I mean, it creates a lot more properties to sell and buy and you know, get involved with. Um, it, it's just... Uh, it, it really is. I, I can't even imagine. It's horrifying to think about 1031 ever going away. Um, it would be a disaster. Yeah, I hope you guys do get it because it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it's from everyone I've heard in the States uh, say that. So yeah, one of these days, one of these days. Yeah. Uh, well, well, thanks so much for, for agreeing to jump on this call, uh, JC. It, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to do it. And I got a lot of insight from it, and I'm sure other people will as well. Uh, I'll leave a uh, link to your channel uh, in the description. I encourage people to go check it out because you offer some some great stuff. Uh, and I hope you put some more commercial content in there as well, uh, because I, th I think you had a lot to offer on that. Uh, and uh, I, for one, will, will be interested in following along. So thanks so much again for jumping on the call. Thank you. I appreciate it. this. Was uh, this is really good? It was a good conversation, and uh, yeah, you've you've inspired me. I'm going to put some more commercial content out there. Love it. I'll give it that first thumbs up when you do. And and hit me up when you come into New York so we can grab dinner. Uh, absolutely, I'll definitely take you up on that. Okay, thanks, JC. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Take care.